0: Great to be able to continue in the book of Ephesians. I was challenged last week by Cody and the other elders. Uh, I think it, it will serve us in this time. It's the gospel. It's calling us to be one. Uh, and like, what better time to be called to be one? Although we're scattered, as Paul was scattered abroad, uh, the church is still one. The church is still uh, gathering in spirit and in heart, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Let me uh, pray for us, and as always, I'm going to give a moment of silence. I encourage you to spend some time, pray for me, and and I will pray for you. Let's believe the Spirit will minister to us in this time. Father, uh, although there is only one person present, it it still bears the weight of preaching your word. I tremble before you and humbly plead with you, Lord, to have mercy on me. Uh, I am unworthy to preach your word. All of us are unworthy to be in your presence, yet your spirit dwells within us. Lord, this magnificent word, of Ephesians 2 that speaks in depth about the gospel. Words such as grace and mercy, love, faith, workmanship, and of course, in Christ. These phrases, these words, Lord, have so much weight that we could spend the next year or the next lifetime upon these words alone and still not grasp the end of the Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for us in our living rooms, our dining rooms, in our offices, wherever we meet this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit will be present with us, that if just like we were in person, you would move powerfully among us, Lord, that your spirit would be working in the midst of our broken, hurting hearts, Lord, that you would be knitting us together as one and binding us to yourself in this time. Lord, remind us, recall the gospel to us, Lord, that our righteousness is bound up in Christ and Christ alone. Oh, Lord, we feel the weight of this time. We lament and sorrow, but we have joy in you, the sovereign one who knows all and is in all and through all. And, Lord, we wait on you. And we say with John and the angels, come Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's greatest concern for the church we see is ultimately that they will grow in knowledge of their God and Savior, of the hope that they have of the inheritance in Christ in the immeasurable power of Christ. In other words, what he wants for the church is that they grow in everything there is to grow in, in who God is, which is an infinite amount. His desire and his hope and his prayer, we see in chapter 1, which we studied a few weeks back, is that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know, that they may know who they are in Christ. That they may know who the creator of the world and the creator of themselves is. That they may know the power that is at work in the midst of them. That they may know the treasures that they have in Christ as their savior. That they may know the hope that is in store for them in the future. The inheritance for all the saints. He has an emphasis on knowing and growing in knowledge. And in one of his other letters to uh Colossians 1.10, he says, So walk in a manner worthy, walk in a manner fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Last week in Philippians, we saw once again a letter that says we want to know God and it's in our knowing of the Lord that we rejoice in him. And we see Paul, this apostle who knew Christ so deeply, he calls out and says, I want to know him more. If only I could know him more in the power of his resurrection. Colossians, this this simple verse bearing good bearing fruit in good works and increasing in the knowledge of God. Two things that he says is pleasing to him, pleasing to the Father, is that we bear good fruit, sorry, fruit in good works and increase in the knowledge of God. The increasing causes us to bear good fruit. It is Paul's desire and the desire of the whole of Scripture, even when we look at the Old Testament, that it is about a knowing of who God is. A knowing of the deeper things of God, an understanding of his complexities, a longing to study him. This is the hope and desire of the whole of scripture. This is the extent of the Christian faith. Not a moral code, but rather a relationship with the living God, which he created us for in the first place in the Garden of Eden. Oh, how gracious it is that the God of all creation, the one who designed and fashioned us, would say, you can know me. You can know me and you can know me personally. And it's in our knowing, it's in our understanding of him, it's in our growing in this, that we will endure to the end, that we will fight against sin, that it's in the knowing of a holy God that helps us rid ourselves of the desires for unholy things. This is how we pursue holiness in growing in knowledge of him. Now we know that old saying that says knowledge is power. See, we have a problem in the church and this problem has been going for many centuries. And at one point there was a full reformation to change it. And the the problem is this understanding of knowledge is power that if we hold knowledge, we hold power over the people. And that is fed down into the church, into the point where the Roman Catholics do it best that the priest knows all and he will teach what he wants the people to know, but no more than what they have to know. Sadly, we see it today in a great many churches that it's the elders and the pastor who should be experts of the faith or know all these greater things, doctrine and theology, yet it, will, yet it is not for the congregation itself. And we hold this level of hierarchy, yet that's not what we see in Paul's life as the great apostle. And that's not what we see in the life of the scriptures in the early church. What we see is a deep desire for the whole church to know. Romans, this great theological book, this book that is so dense on theology and doctrine, is written to a church, not to elders, not to pastors but to the whole church. So Christ's desire for you is that you know all that your pastor would know, that you would understand the deep things of God, that you would continue for all the days of your life, increase into the knowledge of God. And he has sent people to bring this back into the church. And we see in the 1500s, Martin Luther uh, convicts the Catholic church of not using the scriptures and not teaching the church the fullness of the gospel, the whole counsel of God, in fact, distorting it completely. And he nails it down to five things that have to be taught so that all the church would grow in knowledge. And he says, our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. These are called the five solace. The five solace, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And this is what we believe and teach today. It is what we see in this passage. It's what we see as a unity across the whole of Scripture. And I long, I long for all of us as a church to grow deeply in the knowledge of God. So as Ephesians 4 says, we will not be tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. So, church, can I plead with you tonight, today, I don't know why I said night, uh, this morning, and my hope for this time, as we have more time on our hands, as we have less things to entertain us or less places to be because we can't be there, would we strive to study God, all that he is? Because the study of God and all that he is, is one that is unending and a spring that is refreshing to the soul. So please, can I plead with you as Paul pleads through the whole of the scriptures. What's pleasing to the Lord is that you're increasing in the knowledge of God. Most of what we'll hear today, maybe not be new to you, but it is. It is refreshing. It is necessary to hear day after day of God's riches, of his grace, of his mercy, of what is accomplished through Christ. We need to study those. And we need to forever grow in them. Let me read Ephesians 2, 1-10. And you were not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're going to start at verse 4. Two weeks ago, we uh, spent time, our last time gathering in person. Uh, we spent time in one to three and then touched on this last, uh, this first two words in verse 4, but God... And verse 1 to 3 spoke heavily about the nature, the nature of God, uh, sorry, the nature of man. And we see that the nature of man is a, 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 at best, a liability to God. The nature of man is a deadness spiritually to the point where we're chasing after the world, the devil and our flesh. We looked at it and it looked bleak. There was nothing in ourselves, no human uh, being alive that could have saved us because we were uh, dead and we needed someone outside of our situation. And considering we need someone outside of our situation and all of humanity is in the same status, same place, there was no possible way for a human being that was created like like us to be our saviour and it states in verse 4 it's almost like there should be a pause at the end of verse 3 and then a long a, a long awaited uh, drum roll for this uh, introduction of the savior but god but god who is rich in mercy notice that he says it's god who is rich so he's stating that from 1 to 3 we are poor we have nothing we are spiritually broken there is utterly uh, emptiness. It's debts upon debts in us. And it, it's interesting to me, and I find it in my own heart, and I'm sure you would agree, when we hear that we have nothing at all, we need it clari- We need to clarify that. For some reason, in my heart, it's the human pride that says, oh, I know it says nothing at all. I know it says dead in my trespasses and sins, but I must have to do something. There must be a little bit of me left. I, I must have a a tiny bit of good in me that pursues. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, is stating to us that we have nothing at all. And we will see that as we unpack this passage. And And as I was studying this, I just sort of highlighted in two colors all that it says about god and what he does and all that it says about us and what we do and and if i just skim through it and point to you what this looks like it says but god who is rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us here's our bit even as we were dead in our trespasses and sins that's all we get the rest of the letter the rest of this section goes on to speak about all that god does He made us alive in Christ. By grace, we are saved. He raised us up to the heavenly places. He seated us with Christ. In the coming ages, we'll see his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. It is his faith, a gift from him, his workmanship. When we look at this passage, we add nothing to it except the need for salvation because we're dead. We add the need for salvation. Verse five: We are dead in our, uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So we see that God, who is rich in mercy, God who is rich in mercy, He shows us an undeserved kindness by not punishing us. Mercy is not just letting someone off lightly. Mercy is letting someone off completely. God's mercy is letting us go from being children of wrath and not pouring out that wrath on us, but rather giving us blessing. Instead of wrath, we are recreated into children of God. We were, verse 3, children of wrath. But now, because of his mercy and his love towards us, he recreates us into children of God, and we will get to how he does that. But it's because of God's rich mercy and the great love that he has towards us that he diverts his wrath onto the only one who could consume it and appease it, Christ, and turns us into what Christ is to him, a child of God. Now, we have to hold in tension God's love and God's wrath. They're two sides of the same coin. We can't say God is just love, which is true. God is love. It states that in 1 John 4. We know that God is love, but he has wrath in him. Now, it is not loving for God to excuse wickedness. Proverbs tells us that he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to God. Therefore, if God says, I'm going to pardon all wickedness and forget that it ever happens, He is sinning, and because God can't sin, he can't do that. God cannot just excuse the sin that we have. He must pour out his just wrath. And instead of pouring it out on those who deserve it, he pours it out on Christ. So in his just and perfect wrath, because of his rich mercy and love towards us. He diverts his wrath and puts it on one who can consume it. And we will come to that as we unpack this passage. So we touched on verse 5, but just to put the emphasis on, he does this while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is really important to understand because he's not asking us to take a step towards him. He's not asking us to bring 0.01% to the equation. He does this. His great mercy or riches of his mercy and his love towards us is happening while we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're not looking in his direction. In fact, Romans 3 tells us that we aren't uh, even aware of him. No one seeks God. No one knows God. No one wants to know God. So we've got this image of humanity who's completely dead in their trespasses and sins, not looking towards God, not, uh, not 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 walking that way, not taking one step, not adding anything to it. And it's God in his riches that does everything for that dead person. Let's see what he does. The end of verse five goes on to say, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So God, who is rich in mercy and love towards us, while we are dead, while we have debts upon debts, while we are a liability, in that state, in that position, he, God, makes us alive. We just need to think about that for a moment. And pause and and just meditate. Meditate that it was in that moment of not seeking Him, not wanting Him, not looking for Him, that He pulled us up and made us alive. Think of Paul the Apostle, who's on his way to arrest and maybe kill followers of Jesus, walking on the road to Damascus. He's certainly not looking for Jesus, And Jesus appears to him and completely in that moment changes his desires. He was dead. Spiritually, he was dead. He had an anger towards those who followed Christ and he was going to kill them. And he changed from being angry to in three days or so time when Ananias opens his eyes. Where does he go next? The synagogue to preach. A man who was not seeking Christ was dead in his sins, dead in his trespasses, and then, in a moment, came alive. I think of George Whitfield, one of the greatest street preachers of all times, would go to the factory workers and the coal workers, preach on streets to thousands of people, many a times getting tomatoes and all sorts of fruit thrown at him. One time, this man comes with stones, full uh, with pockets full of stones. And George Whitfield is preaching on John 3. And at the end of the message, the man walks up to him with the stones in his pocket. He empties his pockets and he said, I came to hear you with full pockets of stones to break your head. But your message got the better of me and broke my heart. That is what Christ does when he raises us from the dead and makes us alive in him. We have one desire, a desire of wickedness and evil, a desire of walking in the direction away from God, not seeking him, not looking for him. And then in the moment of justification, he makes us alive. Now, for some of us, it happened like Paul and George Whitfield. Some of us know the moment that it was. Others it felt like it was this longer period of time. But at some point, at some point, you were dead and then you were alive. And God, God did that work. Now, it says he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now, with Christ, we have been made alive together with Christ. Uh, the depths of this phrase could leave us here For the rest of our lives, preaching on this very topic every Sunday or every day. And we won't reach the end of it. This is a miraculous work that took place on the cross in our lives before we were created. That he made us alive with Christ. Now, bear with me. Uh, There's a lot to understand about this. I'm going to briefly go over it. I'm going to come back to that word by grace. There's a richness to that word by grace. But let us look at this with Christ. We are made alive together with Christ. Here is what Paul is saying. You were dead in your sins. You had a guilty verdict of sin upon your shoulders, upon your life. You were labeled a sinner and therefore going to the judge, the judgment seat, God, the holy judge said you are condemned to death. We see that in Genesis 3. Because Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life, they were condemned guilty sinners and therefore condemned to die and if, and face eternal condemnation. God took your guilty verdict and he placed that on Christ, the holy one, the one who has never thought evil, done evil, the one who was part of God, is God and in three and one, dwelt with him in all eternity before anything else is created, becomes man, lives a guiltless life, has no shame, no sin. And your guilty verdict is taken and placed on Christ. We see this in 2 Corinthians five twenty one. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Right there, we see such depth, such richness richness that people have written books thicker than the Bible on this passage, this verse alone. He knew no sin. So Jesus takes on all our liabilities. He takes on the guilty status of sinner. He takes on the title, child of wrath. He takes on the curses of sin. He takes on the penalty for sin. And there, the riches, riches of God became poor. There, the one who dwelt in holiness was titled and labelled unholy. And in that state, on the cross, he appeased the father's wrath and faced the punishment that was deserved for a guilty sinner. And three days later, we get to this. Phrase, simple phrase that Paul writes that has so much depth depth, and we were made alive with Christ, together with Christ. Because three days later, Christ rose victorious. And along with him, along with him, all the people that the father had given him. John 10 tells us that Jesus knows those who are his. He knows them. And he says, I will not let any of them fall from my grip. I've come to give my life for them. I lay it down for them. And in this moment, all those who are he's rose to life with Christ. They raise victorious. You, brother and sister, have risen to life with Christ. You today are alive with Christ. If Christ is alive... Therefore, you are alive. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. If if there is no resurrection and if Christ did not raise from the dead, your faith is futile and vain and there's no point following. You should be pitied among all. But if Christ has risen and he defeated death, you, brother and sister, you, church, have risen too. And you are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Isn't this An incredible thing to look at. Not only have we risen with Christ, but we are seated with Him in the heavenly places with Christ. This is how certain your faith is. It's not you will be seated with Him in the heavenly places, you are today seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That is mind-blowing. You can see why we can study this all the days of our life, this picture of Christ stepping into our place, but us taking on His righteousness this exchange that took place. We were labeled guilty for sin that has gone on to Christ and his righteousness has now been labeled, uh, we have been labeled with his righteousness. We know this. Look, at if we are to be seated in the heavenly places, that is a holy place. The only one who is seated in the heavenly places, the only ones are those who have been created for that space angels, seraphim, we see in Isaiah 6, created for that space to be in there. We, who have been made alive with Christ, have been given the status, the verdict of righteous. That's the gospel. That it's not by your performance, it's not by your work, it's not by your effort, it's not anything to do with what you've done you were lying there like a dead a dead uh a dead to spiritual things corpse doing nothing and in that moment you were raised to life because of the work christ done remember we said that god cannot justify the wicked it is an abomination to justify the wicked he doesn't justify the wicked he condemns christ in the flesh He condemns Christ in the flesh. In other words, he condemns Christ with the full weight of guilty sinner upon his shoulders so that we may be marked with his righteousness. We may be marked with his righteousness and enter into the heavenly places. Our, Our salvation is secure to the point where we are told we are seated in the heavenly places. We're seated in the heavenly places. You cannot be pulled out of the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus that we will see all the kindness towards us. What a beautiful gospel. Not your effort. Not your good works, but Christ and his righteousness. You are not righteous. You have no righteousness of your own. You stand upon the righteousness of Christ. This means you had nothing when you came. You still have nothing now. So the Christian life is not about you and your performance. There's no such thing as a good or a bad Christian. Don't say, I'm not a very good Christian. You are, none of us are. We're not good Christians. We're not trying to achieve a certain status. We have made that status because of Christ. And now because Christ lives in us, in the midst of temptation, we can stand and say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. We can pray and plead with the spirit And by grace, he will give us the capacity to say no and turn from it. And when we fall, which we will, I know you will fall. I know I will fall. We stand in the promise and the truth of the finished work of Christ on the cross that he condemned sin in the flesh. That means there's no condemnation for you because Christ was condemned. Christ was condemned. So in temptation, we stand in the righteousness of Christ and say, I have his power to overcome this. When we fall, we stand in the finished work of Christ saying, I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God. I'm labeled righteous. Remind me of these truths. Let my soul meditate on these truths. Now we'll see these five points that we see in Luther's work, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. According to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. In verses 8 to 10, and we'll get to this word, grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We saw... Earlier in in this passage that we are made alive to get alive together with Christ by grace This is an important word This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world that it is by grace now grace is the decisive work of God The decisive work of God which you could not do nor deserve it is the Fulfillment of God's work. God doing the work for us that we didn't deserve or could do ourselves. When we see a human perspective of grace, our human perspective of grace is often motivated by our own evilness, our own weakness, our own realizing that we don't deserve it. So we do it out of pity or we do it out of a a place of, well, I want grace as well, so I'll do it. God has no reason to show us grace. He is perfect in all his ways, he is holy. He has no evil in him. Evil can't stand in his midst. So when we see God's grace, God's grace to us is him doing a work that we couldn't do ourselves nor deserve it in the first place. That work is, of course, our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification. What we see in this Paul reminding us, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This work so clearly from verse 5 or verse 1 to 3 onwards is a work that we could not do. So grace is the work of God that we couldn't do nor deserve. You have not earned it. You have not achieved it. You're not securing it for yourself today. It is God's work from the beginning of His planning and calling to the finishing work when He brings us into glory. It is through faith alone. So grace alone, God's work alone, faith alone. And He says in uh, in Hebrews 11, 1, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. A great definition of faith for us is that faith is believing And trusting in a God or the God who created all things, who sustains all things, who is in control of all things. It is the belief in a holy triune God who sent his son in the likeness of human flesh, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who sent his spirit into us. And we are certain of these things. We believe them, trust them and know them to be true. But we've got a problem, a problem with this statement. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Now, if that's where we stop, we have a problem because Romans 3, we've quoted it before, says no one seeks for God. How can we have faith in a God that we're not seeking for? If, If it's through faith, if we're meant to somehow muster up some faith to believe in the one who has died for us and rose to life, How do we do that? Well, we can't. And the very next verse tells us, verse 9, not as, a sorry, the end of verse 8. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Here we go. Once again, the, the work is not our own. Not even mustering up faith is our own. It says it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That means your faith is a gift from him. Even the faith to believe in God comes from God. He is the one that gives it to us so that we can believe in us. We were in a place of deadness. A dead person can't believe in anything. He makes us alive. He gives us faith. He, He continues to build our faith as we grow in knowledge of him. Faith, the faith that you have to believe in God is not your own faith. We do not walk around saying things like, if I just had more faith, I would see more fruit in my life. That is not biblical. We can pray for more faith. We can ask God to help our unbelief. We see that in the story in the gospel. But your faith is a gift. It's undeserved. It's not merited. It's a gift. And he reminds us again, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, you cannot boast in this. We do not walk around saying, I have more faith than the unbeliever because I believe in God. No, we have been graciously spared and given that gift of grace, uh, that gift of faith. You have done nothing. We don't boast, we don't brag. We don't boast in our good works of evangelism or discipleship. We boast in Christ and Christ alone. He saved us. He gave us the faith to go forth into the work. He gave us the faith to believe in him, to know him. We boast in Christ alone. So grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul reminds us that it is in Christ alone. He reminds us by saying we don't boast in ourselves because it's not our work and we've already been through it, that it is Christ's work, his righteousness, his death, his resurrection, and his sustaining Holy Spirit that will bring us to the end. So we pursue the righteousness of Christ. We hold on to the fact that we are labelled righteous, righteous in Christ. So day after day, uh, we say no to the flesh and we remind ourselves by word and prayer and by the building up of the other saints that we are righteous in Christ, His work. Christ alone, not ourselves, not boasting in our work, but in His work. John Piper, a, a preacher, says this, in our moments of darkness, in our moments when we are tempted by evil and we don't know how to uh, gather ourselves. He says, this is the rock where we stand when dark clouds gather and the floods lick our feet. Justification is by grace alone, not mixed with your merit, through faith alone, not mixed with your work, on the basis of Christ alone, not mingling his righteousness with ours, to the glory of God alone. Not ours. That's where we stand. That's where we stand. Grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And of course this is all written in the scriptures alone, and it is our our one authority that we submit to. And finally, Paul wraps up by saying something similar to what Piper quotes there for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. This word "workmanship" is a beautiful word in the original language, which is only used twice here and in Romans one twenty, and it speaks in Romans one twenty of this uh, creation that magnifies and glorifies the Creator. And the word in the original is our word for poem, and poems are uh, uh, to be beautiful and. Uh, uh, rhyme and 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 flow together in a way that brings us to recognize the talents and the expertise of the poet the creator so we see this word used when it's speaking about art that reflects something of the creator, the skill of the creator, a poem, an artistic work, a song, a statue, a painting, these things that go, wow, look at the skill and the talent of the creator. And this is what the word is used for us as new creation in Christ. You're God's workmanship in that he has designed you in such a beautiful way that people will say, wow, that is a work of God. I see a work of God in them. They they reflect God because he is like changing them. Their desires have changed. They used to want the world. Now they want him. They used to live in their flesh. Now they live in uh, Christ. Your life changes when you know Christ to the point where, as Paul goes on in verse 10, now that we're in Christ or created in Christ the good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where did we start in Ephesians 2? That we walked in the patterns of the flesh, chasing the world, chasing the devil, following the will of man. That's where we started. In the beginning of the gospel, we were dead and following after our own flesh. When Christ is through with us and God has saved us through Christ, we walk in works that he has prepared beforehand. It's not, about, it's not about morality. It's not about doing good. It's about having a relationship with the creator and knowing the creator and savior so much so that our desires have changed to do his work rather than our own. And that's what it means to be in Christ. Our desires have changed. We once wanted to follow ourselves. We now want to follow Christ. And in everything, we submit to his will. But how can we do that if we don't know him? What is fully pleasing to the Lord is that we know him. We know him and we grow in knowledge of him day by day by day by day. Until we reach the end where he, of course, not us, will bring us to this great word, glorification. And we will be glorified with Christ. We were raised with Christ. We are being sanctified through his spirit and we will be glorified with him. Glorified where all the evil will fall away. All the evil will fall away and his holiness will consume us and his presence will consume us forevermore. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. My God, the riches of this message are too much for us to bear and could leave us pondering for hours if our minds were able to linger for that long. Surely in our human capacity, we will wander off into vain pursuits and our minds will wander away from these infinite glories. God, I pray for myself and your bride, our the church, give us the capacity by your spirit to linger longer in the thoughts of the gospel to comprehend now in this time, but also in the time when sin comes and entangles us, that we are righteous not because of us, but because of Christ. And that if we are righteous, we don't have to say yes to sin. Fill us, Lord, with the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know these things and be moved by them. Thank you that it's your work. And that we are your workmanship and that we will declare the glory of the one who works all things through us and for us to your glory forevermore in Jesus name. Amen.